0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host for today, Shatranjay Mall. Today I'm speaking with Professor Viran Murthy about his new book, The Politics of Time in China and Japan, Back to the Future, which was published by Routledge in 2022. Professor Murthy is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's a transnational historian of Asia, and his research focuses on Chinese, Japanese, and Indian intellectual history. His particular areas of study concern critiques of capitalism and modernity, and he's also interested in post-colonialism and Marxism. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Viren.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Um, so our first question is always biographical, so I would like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up, and how did you become a transnational historian of East Asia?
0: Okay, um, yeah, that's a somewhat of a long uh, story, but I'll try to keep it short. So I was, uh, I was born in Chicago, but we uh, returned to India, specifically uh, Bombay, um, it was about Bombay back then, um, when I was about two weeks old, and uh, we returned then to Chicago when I was about five, um, returned to India around when I was 10, and then with some other kind of backs and forth, uh, moved back to Chicago um, more or less permanently um, when I was around 16 or so um so sort of I was moving back and forth um, between these two uh, places and 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 cultures and um, I guess the next question then I guess is how I became a um, transnational historian well, I became I started out um, actually as a with an interest in China specifically in um, not really history as much as philosophy. Um, But then as I sort of developed, I um, began to become interested in looking at philosophy and history together. And um, that's sort of what we call intellectual history, history of philosophy and so on. Now, the thing now, I guess now how at that point, I wasn't really transnational. I mean, my, my, original interest was actually in ancient China. And so the question of any national, whether it be transnational or or even national, doesn't really make sense at that level. But one of the things that maybe pushed me in a more transnational direction um, was that as part of the training for uh, learning about China, uh, one often learns Japanese. And so as I was learning Japanese, um, I began to become interested in Japanese intellectual history and and then as I noticed a lot of the interaction between these two cultures, especially a lot of Chinese intellectuals going to, um, to Japan and so on, I began to bring these two together. And then I guess um, I was working, I did my PhD dissertation on a Chinese revolutionary named Zhang Taiyan. And he went to Tokyo, um, you know, when he was escaping from the Manchu government in the early 20th century, I think around 90, 1906. And he also had an interest in Buddhism, which he associated with India. So in this one figure, I sort of had um, these three cultures that I was interested in, these three histories that were that I was interested in. I guess uh, China, Japan, and, and India. Um, and so then slowly, I guess that's how I guess I became something like a transnational or maybe comparative historian at times. I mean, my work is not always transnational, but sometimes often thought of in in terms of uh, comparison with other countries, including, of course, European countries.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, I would now like to turn to talking about your new book, um, the book we're talking about today. So The Politics of Time in China and Japan, Back to the Future, is a deeply fascinating and engaging work of intellectual history with an eye-catching title. So how do you come to write this book, and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions um and related to that, could you tell us a little bit about the title and subtitle of the book?
0: Yes, uh, thank you for that um, question uh, It actually touches on a number of different issues. I guess the first thing I should say is um with respect to the book and the various parts is i i I hope that in this case of the the book, the whole is more than the sum of its various parts because um it's a it was a it's a book of various essays that were actually first written separately, uh, many of them. Um, and then um, Robert Langham at, uh, at, at Rutledge um, asked me if I wanted to publish some essays together. And, I, and then as I looked at these essays, I felt that they all revolved around this question of the politics of time in China and Japan. And uh, what I mean by the politics of time is really connected to this idea of retrieving the past or tradition for a politics of a different future. Now, usually one thinks of a politics of tradition as something connected to, to conservatism, right? Um, but, you know, in the sense that these are people who are maybe critical of modernity or something and they want to go back. But, um, in the in the case of my book, we, we're looking at a lot of people who draw on the past in order to further certain goals that are often associated with the left, such as the critique of capitalism. Um, and so for this reason, I call the book Back to the Future, because in some sense, they're going back to the past. But what they're really interested in is the future. Uh, now, of course... They're both right-wing and left-wing critics of capitalism. And, and one of the things I was sort of interested in is trying to see, you know, how those might relate in some way or the other. Um, but a lot of the figures that are in the book are in some ways connected to Marxism. Um, and so that's what sort of shows the way in which you can, this, you can find this kind of politics of, the tr- of tradition on the left as well as the right.
1: Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, when, I, when I was reading the book, I was sort of very struck by um, the, the various examples of the various figures that you um, talk about and about, you know, this this theme of like using tradition to sort of mobilize for the future and sort of to critique the present um, in a way. Um, so I w- I will t- I'll turn to talking about uh, the book in more detail um, in just a moment. But before that, I, I wanted to ask you about your research and writing for the book. Um, so, how did you go about researching for and writing this book? And uh, what were your main sources? As you mentioned, that they, these were like, um, some of them were like a standalone essays. So you might have done like the research and writing for them at various points of time. But could you just tell us a little more about that?
0: Yeah. Um, and here I I'll I will have to sort of begin with a caveat. And I, and I hope I will not uh, disappoint you. Um, because I guess as an intellectual historian, especially a historian of philosophy, um, I don't have as much many stories as perhaps other historians would about like the complexities of archival research. Um, in to the extent that many of my sources are published, um, you know, because they're often books, they're texts uh, that may have been reissued. Um, you know, in the case of John Haiyan, maybe there'll be like magazines such as you know the Minbao, the Revolutionary Journal. But even those, many of those you can find in this complete collected works and so on. Um, And so um, the way in which I got a lot of these essays is uh, in my various trips to China and Japan. Um, And, uh, you know, and I would, you know, go to various bookstores, maybe a lot of used bookstores, those kind of things, um, sometimes libraries and so on. Um, But... um, I guess that's, that's all I can say about the sources, but, and with respect to the writing, as I said, um, yeah. And as, as you also mentioned, it happened over a number of years. Um, So, you know, um, you know, maybe around 10 years at least. And, uh, you know, there were often for different venues where I began, you know, I'd start out being interested in, in various different topics connected to, you know, maybe a conference on modernity or something like that. And uh, and then I noticed that throughout all of these, there was this one theme that was uh, constantly uh, emerging, right? And, uh, and I guess I thought, well, what do I contribute to this theme? And I guess it is really bringing this problem of the co- politics of tradition um, together with the problem of capitalism, I guess, is, is really what I'm trying to constantly bring back in some way or the other in each of these essays.
1: Thank you. Um, so now I will turn to sequentially asking you about the chapters of the book. Um, so the introduction of the book discusses some of the theoretical problems r- related to the politics of time as discussed by various theorists. So as we discussed, like one of the issues is like the issues related to mobilizing the past to open up the way to, for a uh, different future. Um, so you discuss the contrast between Moish Postone and Harry Haretunian's theorizations of the politics of time and present your own theoretical framework drawing on their work. So for those of our listeners not familiar with this topic, could you tell us a little more about these theorists as well as um, these various theories related to um, the politics of time?
0: Sure. Um, yeah, that's a, a very long question and, and it really gets to, I think, the heart of the, the book. Um, so for for many years, I've been interested in the problem of you know Marxism and, and the politics of time and i believe that the the two scholars that you mentioned um moish postone and harry haritonian i think their their respective theorization of the politics of time really present um two major strands um within not only marxism but but more um broadly so let's begin with moish postone he's um a social theorist who actually i think I think passed away just a couple of years ago, and um, his uh, position is complicated because he contends that um, capitalism should be understood as a as a totality that that sort of encompasses everything there's very much the idea that there isn't really once capitalism really gets fully constructed um, the dynamic, once it gets established, there isn't really an outside that is very significant. And so once he does that, he says that there are certain structures um, that emerge in capitalism. One of the main structures is the commodity form, right? And the commodity form, for, you know, for those of our listeners who haven't read Marx, I mean, it's really outlined in the first chapter of capital where you have an opposition between use value and exchange value where use value represents the concrete side of the commodity form and exchange value represents the abstract right so that for example the price of a of a commodity is the abstract and exchange value side right because the the price can be like 10 dollars regardless of what object you're talking about but the use value is extremely concrete now at the face of it this would seem to have you know, it sounds like something that's in economics or sociology or something, but you know, what what does it have to do with thought or intellectual history? And I think what Postone tries to do now here, he's drawing on a lot of people like the Frankfurt School, but he wants to say that the, the opposition between something like concrete and abstract more generally is grounded in the commodity form. Now, this then connects us to the politics of the past, because in Postone's view, um, those scholars who try to use recourse to the tradition to resist, you know, the abstractions of modernity, um, they are actually, without knowing it, just reproducing the logic of the commodity form, right? And so, he is his argument. Is that such people do not understand the object of their critique, namely capitalism, and so as a consequence, they're sort of overcome by that logic or just reproduce that logic. Now he gives an example of this, and he's written about, say, Nazi Germany, where Nazi Germany you had all this, all these anti-capitalists who were looking at the peasant, all these kind of things that seem to be sort of outside of capital, but what they when they actually mobilize that. They end up reproducing a, a fascist form of capitalism. Um, so that I guess is going to be the postone in a nutshell. There's obviously a lot more to say, and I've 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 written about him uh, in other places. Now, Harry Haratunian um, is an interesting figure because he's actually started, starts out as a, as a historian of Japan, but he's a historian of Japan who you know has, I think. N- really contributed to the field in, in bringing theory to Japanese studies and in, in many ways. Um, and uh, he wrote a book in 2000 that uh, was actually a study of, it's a book called overcome by modernity with a very nice title, um, which uh, really dealt with a lot of the, the Kyoto school and, and somewhat conservative thinkers in, um, in Japan. And, um, in the in the interwar period, and his main argument, when I first read it, I actually thought it was very postonian, um, because if you think about it, the argument is that he says that all these people are trying to overcome modernity, but what they actually do is become overcome by modernity, right? Because so so the argument in that sense overlaps with Poston. However. Um, even in that book, he's quite interested in the problem of uneven development and multiple temporalities, um, which he doesn't really, you know, the significance of that doesn't come out in his Overcome by Modernity, but it comes out in a book published in, I think, around 2015 called Marx Beyond Marx. And there he begins to look at Marxists, and not now not just in Japan, but there is a Japanese Marxist he deals with in some detail, uh, Uno Kozo. Um, but he looks at, you know, Chinese Marxists, uh, I think Wang Yanan he looks at, and he looks at um, a a number of other scholars um, who are in some sense Marxists, but who are somewhat, somewhat interested in uneven development. And, you know, so you can think something like third world Marxism. And there he says that with this problem of multiple temporalities, some of the temporalities that are not completely subsumed under capitalism, so certain modes of life and so on, could be used to resist capitalism. So, so now you get the idea of, you know, this idea of a politics of tradition in in um, in Marxism, uh, you know, that does that can't be reducible to a fascist outcome. Now, this is again connected to another argument that he makes about real and formal subsumption that I'll quickly articulate. Um, now, put simply. The idea of real subsumption, the way he interprets, interprets it, is that everything gets subsumed under capitalism. while the idea of formal subsumption is that capitalism and this is the standard reading is in the beginning of capitalism you capital first formally subsumes, so it leaves other modes of production intact without completely transforming them now there's a debate within Marxism as to whether that's a stage, like first you subsume without completely transforming the mode, but eventually the the mode gets transformed and you have capitalism. Now, what Haritunian wants to say, no, 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 what one has to see is that capitalism always remains somewhat incomplete. It's never able to completely subsume Mm -hmm. um, its its other. And then that other can be a fulcrum of resistance, right? I think that's... um, I, I realize that was a lot but
1: uh oh th- no thank you for thank you for sharing that i mean i think that it's the w- w- what you shared the sort of the issues that you discussed related to both uh, Postone and harritonian like these sort of touch on so many different issues So i'd urge um, any of our listeners who are a- a- interested in sort of um sort of uh, thinking more about this to read the introduction uh, to the book um, um in which you articulate um uh, some of this so now um, I'll, I'll turn to talking about the rest of the chapter. So in chapter one, you examine shifting conceptions of the Chinese past by Chinese and Japanese intellectuals over time as East Asia shifted from a Sinocentric world to the modern world of nation states. Um, so could you tell us more about these changing Chinese and Japanese perspectives and about some of the thinkers that you analyze to elucidate these transformations as well as differences uh, among these various viewpoints?
0: Yeah, so chapter one was a is a very broad chapter. I mean, I, I it's not something usually that I think a, a historian would write, um, because I start with Confucius and I get all all the way to the twentieth century. So, but but the reason I chose Confucius is because I began to think about, you know, if you think about a politics of the past, I mean, Compu- Confucius was perhaps one of the first um, people who talked about, you know, the politics of the past because his whole idea of you know, going, you know, he's writing in the Warring States period, right? So, um, and um, he's seeing his society as being very chaotic. And he says, well, there's a past, you know, where the three dynasties, you know, which is, you know, something like 1200 BC, right? He's writing around what, something like sixth century or something. I, I mean, I think, you know, and he's saying, you know, if we could go back to that past, things would be much better that's when the the rituals the society was well ordered so i look at confucius as one of the first people who really deals with this politics of time because he's going back to that past but you know later confucians will say you know in some sense he's like a reformer using that past and so i look at that and then show how you know that idea continues in china but eventually you know you get versions of that in 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 Japan as well, right, so moving to Japan very quickly, um, one of the figures I look at is um, Sorai, right, and so he's an Edo period, a tokugawa period, right Tokugawa meaning what I, I, I think specifically he's, he's actually seventeenth century um, and and he's someone who goes back um, to uh, Confucius. Um, but, you know, in a Japanese context, and he's doing that to sort of attack like um, the Tokugawa, in some sense, ideology of, of the, the Song Confucians, right? So, I mean, to understand this, I guess one needs to know a little bit about the history of Confucianism in China, where you start with classical Confucianism, but one of the big breaks that happens is Song Dynasty Confucianism. Um, where you really get the establishment of very new, much more abstract concepts like the heavenly principle, right? Which, um, which is a concept that is foreign to classical Confucius. So you get something that is much more metaphysical, right? Because um, the by that time, by the time you get to the Sung, you know the real going back to the the three dynasties is impossible. So what you have to do is keep the three dynasties as an ideal. But then still use this metaphysical principle to somehow say that you know uh, what the three dynasties mean for us is actually embodied in um, the Song dynasty state or something like that, right? Now the Tokugawa right the regime eventually uses a lot of these ideas um, because they're trying to naturalize their own kind of uh, uh, power, and that power is in some sense uh, going to be ideologically buttressed through you know, an amalgam of, you know, Shinto and, uh, and, um, yeah, Song Confucianism. So this idea of, especially the idea of the heavenly principle. And it's interesting that in the context, you know, of the 17th century, um, Sorai then comes in and says, Hey, you know, uh, this is all going in the wrong direction. And so then, so then China, it's not, so it's not only the past, but also there's a geographical dissimilarity here, right? Cause China comes up almost as a, as a, symbol of critique. Um, and so much so that China as the past or China as, you know, another geographical entity becomes almost subordinate to this, this figure of China as an idea, right? And I, and I say this because, you know, there are parts where Ogyo Sorai sometimes says, you know, Japan, Japan actually is realizing Chinese ideals better than China, right? um in certain in certain ways right and so 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 i move on to to that uh, that figure and his use of of china and that, but then i move on from there to uh, motorino norinaga right who's uh, i think uh, a little later than Ogyu Sorai. and you know he has a very structurally very similar argument except china sort of takes a completely different valence in his in his work right because he's also saying we need to go back but instead of going back to the Japanese uh, past, he says we'd have to go back to the Chinese past. And so, oh, sorry, instead of going back to the Chinese past, he says we need to go back to the Japanese past. And, and so that's, you know, some people see that as being very significant because it's like a proto-nationalism or something that emerges, you know, before Western contact, right? And then, and then I move from there to, you know, Meiji Restoration and then a complete shift where with someone like Fukuzawa Yukichi writing after, you know, the Meiji Restoration, I think it's in the 1870s, he has this uh, famous Bunmeron no Gairaku, right? The, uh, uh, in the inquiry or outline of a theory of civilization, where he actually um, outlines a very linear idea of civilization, which is progressive, right? So, so that's what I began, I end the chapter with, that you move from this politics of going back to the future to kind of uh, Fukuzawa Yukichi, where, he, where you're moving forward. Um, although I said, what I also show is that he can't quite completely separate himself from the politics of, of, the, of the past because uh, the nation state is in some sense in a, always in a tension between these two. Um, because on the one hand, it's going forward, but the idea of constructing a national identity always requires you to go back to the past. And so the emperor and these kind of things also require this gesture to the past. Um, and then finally the the last figure in the in the chapter is Jiang uh, Tayen, who does a critique of evolutionary time. so um, I end with that in his his use of Buddhism.
1: Thank you. Um, that, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think it sort of um, is something that would sort of uh, interest like people from many different disciplines, like not just history, but like philosophy and so on. Um, since, since you discussed like Confucius and some of these other um, figures. Um, and actually, as you were speaking, I just suddenly had a follow-up question about like notions of time. And, uh, um, could you, like, like you mentioned that uh, Fukuzawa Yukichi takes this linear conception of time. Could you tell us a little more about, um, shifting conceptions of time of time in East Asia in, in the sense that you know sh- sh- that it, was there some sort of shift from thinking of time in a circular sense to thinking of time in a linear sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, you could you could put it that way. Um, I think there are always um, it's we have to be careful not to be too binary in all of these uh, in these judgments, but we could say maybe there's a dominant mode. Um, for example, Um, Confucian time, there's something cyclical about it, right? I mean, because if we think about dynastic time, um, it is cyclical in the sense that, you know, you get one dynasty ending and then you get another dynasty that has to now redo the calendars and all of these kind of things. So there's something cyclical about it. But um, there is also the idea of, if you want to think about their idea of keeping the three dynasties as, as an ideal, there's still an idea of a kind of history as regression that keeps coming up, right? That, you know, that was the golden age and things are getting worse and worse and we've got to figure out how do we, how do we get back, right? Um, how do we at least bring that spirit back, if not bring the institutions back? I think in Confucius' time, there was actually the idea that we could bring the institutions back. By the Sung, you can't do that. Um, but there was still the idea that we could bring this, the spirit back now i think that's what changes um that all of a sudden the the goal is the future this idea of development and progress is really what's um i think central to modern conceptions of time um that you know things are getting better and better right and and that kind of thing is is very so that all of a sudden the past in some ways looks like it's something we need to overcome but but that's precisely what makes me interested in these Back to the Future narratives, because those are people saying, no, 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 there's something in the past that really is not just of the past, but, you know, could be part of our future, right? And I think that's um, what animates uh, much of the book. But one last thing about that, I mean, is, um, you know, we all, the reason I say we have to be careful about this idea of um, thinking about linear and circular, I mean, because someone like you know, around the Song dynasty, there was certain ideas, you know, it's uh, so a late Tang a thinker named Liu Zongyuan has this idea of, you know, the propensity of, of time or something okay. like that, right? This idea of shi. Um, that actually is sort of moving in a, he wants to say that it's, there's a way in which it's, mo- there's a, there's a move forward where you can't go completely backwards, right? And so that is a kind of linear time. And, and the reason he says that is he wants to say, we can't go back to the older Zhou dynasty system, which was much more decentralized. So, it, so there is, you know, it's not a simple idea of progress, but it is this idea of sort of, you know, we can't go back, right, that kind of idea.
1: Thank you. Um, So now I'll turn to talking about uh, chapter two. Um, So um, you discuss uh, various post-Hegelian critics of modernity in Germany and Japan in the early 20th century in chapter two. Um, So I have a two part question related to this chapter. Um, So firstly, for those in our audience, not as familiar with Hegel, could you tell us about the Hegelian vision of history? Um, And then secondly, could you tell us about the various Japanese and German intellectuals um, and the the critiques of modernity that they present um, that you discuss in this chapter?
0: Right. Um, So Hegel is complex. um, But for this chapter, it's not so much Hegel himself um, who's going to be the main um, figure, but how Hegel was perceived. Um, because I don't think Hegel was a simple linear theorist of time. Um, you know, there's all, there are all these ways in which he wanted to really synthesize um, some of the, the benefits of the uh, ancient world, um, especially the Greek world with um, the modern period. But um, I think the way he's eventually perceived is very much as a simple, a theorist of progress and linear history. Um, and so that's that's really the kind of foil that um, articulates this chapter, right? That he is he is the figure um, who a lot of people in the 20th century start criticizing. And I was noticing that a lot of people are criticizing this vision of progress because, in some sense, we just talked about that vision of progress in the in the first chapter. Um, and I began to see these other people who all try to find something that can resist this, right? So that, and I was, and I'm looking at, you know, a couple of figures from different perspectives. And I think one is uh, Franz Rosenzweig, um, who is a Jewish philosopher. And I look at him and the way in which he wants to say there's something about the Jewish experience that doesn't quite fit this linear history, right? Because so that the linear history, he wants to say is almost maybe there's something very Christian about it, right? And he wants to say there's another type of time in Jewish practices and so on, and that is something. Uh, and here I drop, draw on the work of Mikhail uh, you know, where he says that a lot of these, um, a lot of these Jewish leftists were drawing on this idea of, um, you know, some kind of Jewish experience, a, you know, idea of a different type of time to construct their idea of um, of socialism. Um, and uh, you know or, or a critique of capitalism and so in, 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 in that sense I was, I was drawing on that and then and then I wanted to see whether you know I, I sort of I argue that in Japan also you have some some similar kind of figures. Um, I think I specifically look at Miki kiyoshi um a an interwar japanese sort of marxist but but he's someone who's sort of really spans he goes from um, you know being a marxist to being somewhat uh, more on the right, but but I think, despite his criticism, uh, bis, 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 despite his shift, um, he's always interested in drawing on the past to criticize uh, capitalism. And I specifically look at his reading of Shinran, um, the Kamakura medieval uh, Japanese Buddhist, uh, who you know has this almost a kind of millennial kind of vision of. Um, decline and so on, and, and the Buddhist law and all of these kind of things. And I show how he draws on that to articulate a critique of um, his, his you know, contemporary society, his contemporary society that, that, that is becoming worse and worse and uh, increasing in various types of oppressions. Did that answer the question? Oh,
1: Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, as as you mentioned earlier, that you're not just a transnational historian, but a comparative historian. And the examples you draw in this chapter of Germany and Japan sort of um, illustrate that sort of uh, perspective um, that you bring uh, in the book. Um, So um, in the third chapter, you recover uh, the Japanese Marxist philosopher Umemoto Katsumi who you argue is overlooked in the history of Japanese philosophy and indeed much of our audience may not be familiar um, with this figure either Uh, so could you tell us a little more about him and why you see him as a significant figure in Japanese intellectual history
0: yeah so um he's um He is an overlooked figure because, I mean, when you think about, like, when people talk about Japanese philosophy, they'll even most probably talk about the Kyoto School and so on, philosophers such as Nishida Kitaro and so on. Maybe Miki Kyoshi, although he's sort of in the margins of that, um, that school. But definitely Nishida Kitaro, Tanabe Hajime would be two people that, that'll come to mind. Um, and usually Marxists in, in general are not really discussed. Um, recently, maybe there's some interest in Tosaka Jun. Um, but Umemoto Katsumi is not really discussed that much. And But but Umemoto, I think he became most famous for this um, the debate about um, uh, subjectivity in the in the 50s, in the post-war period. Um, and, uh, you know, the big debate was about, you know, what is the role of subjectivity in Marxism? And, and I sort of pick up on that. Um, and I get into a dialogue with some of the, the few other works on Umemoto Katsumi in um, in, in, in English, and that is basically, I guess, which Victor Koshman's book is the most um, well-known there, right, uh, Revolution and Subjectivity. And, um, you know, the, I began to look at, well, what is what was really Umemoto's politics? And, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, Koshman and others say, well, you know, he didn't stress subjectivity enough and so on and this kind of thing. And I try to show how, you know, by drawing on um, an amalgam of people like, you know, he draws on, you know, Buddhist ideas. I mean, he was also someone very early on influenced by by Shinran, the pure land, pure land Buddhism, but also people like Heidegger and so on. So the 20th century kind of anti-Hegelian kind of um, uh, perspectives. But what I want to show is that what he tries to do, insofar as he remains Marxist, is to take some of those Heideggerian elements. You know, this you know ideas such as nothingness, all this, because that's what sort of gives human beings possibilities. You know, that's that's moment of subjectivity. But he tries to reinscribe that whole moment of subjectivity in a larger historical narrative towards socialism, right? And so that's what what I think the the project is. And so, in some sense, there's a re Hegelianizing that he, that he tries to de- de- develop at the at the end there, because he doesn't want the subjectivity to just merely be indeterminate, but somehow bring these things uh, together, you know, inc- including ideas such as class struggle. Um, so if we put Umemoto Katsumi back into that his own context, uh, he was criticized quite severely by uh the more orthodox marxists because they were saying you know there's no reason for subjectivity why should marxists be talking about subjectivity we should just be talking about class right then he says no 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 we somehow we need both right um you know and that that i think is uh, what yeah what i was looking at i mean towards the end i also have a discussion of the whole problem of civil society and so on but uh, yeah
1: so, in Chapter 4, you discuss two Japanese Sinologists, Nishi Junzo and Mizoguchi Yuzo, who were both influenced by the Sinologist and Pan-Asianist Takeuchi Yoshimi. Uh, so, could you tell us more about these figures and their visions of the Chinese Communist Revolution of, 1940, of 1949, um, as well as the concept of Tianxia?
0: Okay, so, um, yeah, these these two figures are sort of... Interesting because they're often not uh, written about I think in the other I mean even less than the other figures that I that I talk about because you know Ni- Nishi Junzo is someone who if you're not a China scholar especially someone interested in Chinese intellectual history you may not not even know this person uh-huh. but he's um, an interesting figure because his father was um actually a contemporary of Nishida Kitaro um and was also an ethicist now somewhat conservative and Nishi Junzo sort of grows up um being very influenced by some of that background so ethical thought but also very German he knows he was studied a lot of German thought and then from that perspective he then he then becomes a um a sinologist. Um, and so he sort of brings these two things together. Um, and in the post-war period, he also starts becoming very interested in in, uh, in Mao Zedong and, and, and sort of Maoist thought and, and the Chinese revolution. But he starts bringing this, you know, um, sensitivity with sort of German thought, especially German idealism, to his reading of... Um, the Chinese revolution. And um, one of the paradigms and one of the processes that he described is is somewhat, uh, I guess, indebted to Takeuchi Yoshimi or at least overlaps with Takeuchi Yoshimi. And and that is that he claims that what happens in China is that as um, the whole modernization project constantly fails, right? Right. so, for example, the self-strengthening movement, the Hundred Days Reform, uh, the 1911 Revolution, even none of them really succeed. Right. And so what he says is by that time, what happens is China is re- reduced to almost nothing. Right. Um, but then it's that nothing that then res- resists. Right. So that's so he, he gets that almost a kind of dialectical reversal. And that when that nothingness resists and, and he thinks in some sense, Jiang Taiyan embodies a lot of this. Um, when that nothingness resists and actually, which, which in some sense represents the people, right? I mean, because the people are those who have nothing. You can also think about it, you know, Musen Shah is actually, that could also almost be synonymous with the kind of proletariat. Um, but in any case, that the outcome of that is the 1949 revolution. So what's interesting about this is that it is a dialectic, it's a dialectical movement, but it's one that doesn't really um, depend that much on the tradition, right? Because it's actually about when everything is reduced to nothing, well, then you have that resistance. So I contrast that with Mizoguchi Yuzo because Mizoguchi Yuzo is another one who's he's also got some interest in this kind of dialectics and so on. But what he tries to do, again, somewhat influenced by, by Takeuchi Yoshimi because he's the one who started started this idea of China taking this other path and so on, um, but what Mizoguchi Yozo does that's very different is instead of saying, well, China is reduced to nothing. In fact, he's very critical of that because um, he says that overlooks all of what happens in Chinese history. Um, and in fact, he criticizes both Nishijunzo and Takeuchi Yoshimi for saying that, you know, the China that you've constructed to understand the revolution is actually just a mirror of Japan. That these scholars are much more interested in criticizing um japan than they are in actually understanding china right so that so that it becomes this kind of fiction and so what he says is you have to go back to the past of china and he starts trying to find a logic to the chinese past so what he does with that and i think you know this is a a figure who i think really deserves more work um, because what he does is he starts looking at the history of Chinese thought, and the emergence of, of, of subjectivity in China. So this is the attempt to sort of find indigenous uh, modernity in China. And once he does that, he then says, well, in the Ming and the late Qing, you sort of, you begin to get the emergence of this subjectivity, but it's a very different type of subjectivity because it's always already mediated by some kind of communal uh, impulse. And that's what really animates um, the Chinese Revolution and and all of this is then connected to this problem of Tianxia because Tianxia is in some sense you know literally meaning all under heaven. Now in the Nishi Junzo case, the Tianxia is the nothingness where it's the people right that become the the, the goal, and it also can explain why um, something like socialism becomes a global kind of um, goal right for for the Chinese. Now, for, for Mizoguchi Yuzo, the Tianxia is actually embodied in this kind of dialectic between the kind of individual subjectivity and the community. I guess the communal moment is the Tianxia moment. So that that the Tian, which is heaven, is always a kind of, there's always a communal kind of dimension to it for uh, Mizoguchi Yuzo. But he says that within that, you begin to see the emergence of subjectivity, which people have overlooked because they're all so busy trying to sort of say that you know, the pre-modern has to be negated. And he wants to say, no, no, it's actually in the transformations of the pre-modern that we can understand the particular form that modernity takes in China.
1: Thank you. I mean, I think, um, th- th- as you mentioned, like, these are very overlooked figures. And I think one of the major contributions of your book through, like, um, the earlier chapter, katsumi, as well as this chapter on Nishi Junzo, Mizuguchi Yuzo, and so on, is that um, figure, like uh, figures who um, historians of China and Japan may not be as familiar with, they might be able to sort of get to know more about them from, uh, from reading your book uh, book and as as uh, and as you mentioned, like they they deserve further work, um, like Mizoguchi Yuzo or Nishi Junzo. So I hope um, uh, other scholars sort of build on what you've written in this book um, to open up new paths for scholarship uh, after this. Um, so in chapter five, which is the final chapter of the book, you put Marxism and traditional Chinese philosophy in conversation. Um, and approach this dialogue through the work of the contemporary Chinese philosopher Zhao Tingyang, who has theorized Tianxia or um, All Under Heaven. Uh, So firstly, for those in our audience who are unfamiliar with Zhao, could you tell us a little bit more about him and his work? And secondly, how does connecting Tianxia with Marxism provide a roadmap for an alternative post-capitalist global order?
0: Yeah, so this chapter um, continues a theme that I... Um, introduced in the previous, and that is the problem of Tianxia. But now I'm looking at a contemporary figure, right? So Jiao Tingyang, who's actually contemporary, I think he's born in maybe in 1963 or something like that. Um, and he's one of the most famous Chinese philosophers writing today. I think his work has been translated in a number of Western languages, including French, German, and English. Um, and, uh, you know, his, as as, you know, I guess the title of the, the chapter suggests, I mean, his main idea is, is Tianxia. In fact, in fact, there's an essay that's a book that's, I think, recently just been tra- translated into English, I think, called The Tianxia System or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, he tries to say, well, the big thing about the difference and the real contribution of Chinese philosophy is this concept of Tianxia, that, that if you think about governance, um, the West takes the idea of the nation state as its model. Um, but China has always taken the whole world as a model, right? And uh, in, 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 at least in traditional China. And we need to go back to that. And he says, why do we need to go back to that? Well, take a look at all many of these global crises. Think about the pandemic, for example, right? The pandemic is a, is, is a transnational problem. But uh, the only main ways we have to deal with it are national. And he says, then, of course, you're going to have all kinds of problems. The nation state is ill-equipped to deal with this this problem. We need a a transnational solution. But that's not the only one. That's just one of the recent ones. I mean, think about things like global poverty, um, the environmental crisis. I mean, one could go on and on, Um, that all of these problems are things that need global solutions and global institutions. And so he says, we need to go back to, you know, try to find some kind of larger, um, spheres of institutional cooperation. And, and that's what he thinks the Tien um, really deals with. Um, now I think, um, to come to your second question about Marxism and, and the, uh, post-capitalist global order. I think that although Zhao Yang doesn't maybe put capitalism at the center, um, I do try to point in ways in which he does um, sort of at least allude to that problem. Um, you know, although he doesn't put it at the center, I think the problem of capitalism is everywhere here, right? Because if you think about any of these issues, like whether environmental poverty or any of these issues, in some way or the other, Um, they're all connected to uh, the problem of capitalism. And the one place where we do have global institutions are often to um, enable capitalist uh, production capital flows, right? I mean, think about, you know, World Bank, all of these kinds of things, Um, IMF. I mean, these are all institutions that in some way or the other uh, facilitate the reproduction of capitalism, and we don't. But what we don't have is uh, are are these other are institutions to sort of maybe curb and transform capitalism. And I think that's what the the, the Marxist project and the Tianxia project could actually have in common. Um, now the question, of course, is what? How do we get from here to there? And that I think is the big problem. I think one of the things that Zhao um, Yang actually says is that we do have low-level globalization today, right? I mean, but we don't have a reflexive globalization because what, what happens now is that we have things that are global, but things are just going in all kinds of um, chaotic directions, you know, so that we're affected by all this global, you know, downturns in the economy and so on. What happens in one country can affect the rest of the world. But um, we don't have... Um, institutions for collective global governance, and I think that's that's what where he's gesturing towards.
1: Thank you. Um, so I think um, the, my 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 last question uh, before um, before we end the podcast um, is about the conclusion of the book. Um, so you bring attention to the contradictions and polarized views of China's rise um, in the conclusion. Um, so could you share some final thoughts on this topic as it relates to your book and the politics of time? It's sort of, I guess, sort of, it's also connected with what you were discussing right now with Tianxia. But could you tell us more about this?
0: Yeah, so, well, the conclusion is really short. And, um, you know, I was I just wanted to say a little bit about, you know, how do we understand the present? Um, you know, and I was thinking about back to the future narratives and I thought in some ways, you know, Xi Jinping is also dealing with some kind of, you know, he's always talking about Confucius and so on. Um, you know, sometimes he's talking about Marx, but sometimes Confucius, he's sort of bringing them back. And I thought, yeah, well, yeah, we just wanted to share some initial thoughts about his back to the future narrative and what are the possibilities, you know? And I thought, yeah, well, one thing that I was, what I noticed is, you know, he's going in two directions. On the one hand, it's all about technology and uh, technological development. And on, on the other hand, realizing some of the communal ideas or whatever of the past. And I thought that one of the things he might need to do is sort of bring these two things together. Right. And and so I thought at this point, um, you know, he really might need to think about, you know, some of the Marxist arguments about technological development, Um you know, relative surplus value, the changing composition of capital, right, where fixed capital constantly increases, right? So you get more and more machinery, but, um, you know, variable capital or labor um, begins to uh, decrease. And um, what Marx in the Grundrisse then says is that, well, that could be a possibility for creating a system beyond capitalism that's not based on the exploitation of proletarian labor. Now, That, of course, might be a somewhat simple, simple narrative. But I think it is something that we need to think about, um, you know, and maybe modify in some ways. Um, But I think what happens with um, Xi Jinping sometimes is that it's just these two ideas are there, but they're not really brought together in in any way. So we don't get a clear sense of what, um, you know, what socialism would actually mean for him and so on. So I think that's what I just wanted to. Sort of point in some directions where one could go and sort of rethink, um, you know, the the idea of a back to the future socialist narrative with understanding some of the contradictions in capitalism and how they could point to another society.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, listening to you, I'm just thinking about how like this politics of time sort of leads us in so many different directions, because on the one hand, like there might be some people who take a Postonian view and and, and they might see any sort of uh, look back at uh, tradition and so on as sort of, having this danger of becoming like, you know, fetishized anti-capitalism or sort of you it being directed in a fascistic direction, whereas there might be others who might see that there being some promise and there being some value in sort of trying to sort of um, form maybe like a cross-ideological alliance to sort of overcome capitalism or overcome the excesses of capitalism. So, I mean, uh, I I think for people who are sort of interested in, like, issues of contemporary importance and relevance, I think um, your book sort of points to many different directions. And I guess it's up to the reader to decide where um, they stand on these issues. Um, so thank you, Virain, for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today. Uh, before we end, may I ask you what you are working on right now and what's next for you?
0: Okay, so right now um, there's a book I'm trying to finish on um, called Pan Asianism uh, and the Legacy of the Chinese Revolution, and that should be coming out with the uh, University of Chicago Press sometime next year. You know, maybe. I think September or something. Um, and so that's sort of on, on finishing. And now um, what I'm thinking, uh, there are a couple of projects I'm involved in um, next. And I think one of them um, will be most related to this. And that is maybe trying to think this Tianxia problem um, through, you know, Japan and China um, further. Um you know, and maybe I'll, I'll see if, you know, if, if there's an Indian dimension to this as well, I'll try to, but uh, try to bring that in. But I think that in, in terms of um, China and Japan, I mean, I was thinking, you know, the Kyoto School, you know, there are two Kyoto schools, right, in, 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 um, in Japan, and people sometimes get confused about them, or the two don't talk much, and that is the Kyoto School of Philosophy and the Kyoto School of Sinology, and they're writing around the same time. Um, and both of them in some way or the other are interested in an East Asian alternative or an East Asian world. And, and I think the Kyoto School of Philosophy, um, and the, specifically people like Koyama Iwao and uh, Kosaka Masaki, are both very interested in this kind of world philosophy or world history kind of perspective. And here, of course, Hegel is in the background again. Um, and so I was thinking about looking at them in and looking at how they're, again in the 30s and 40s, trying to come up with this idea of a new world order and all of this kind of thing. Um, and then trying to then maybe go further into um, the Chinese Tianxia experience as well. I mean, I've looked at Zhao Tingyang, but there are a number of other Tianxia theorists. Um, and I'm trying to see, well, well, what do they really have to say um, about these, you know, this, this problem of global governance? I mean, if we look beyond Zhao Tingyang, who's maybe the most famous, um you know what are some of the other ways in which they're thinking about global governance and you know maybe even a historical narrative towards a new type of globality so that's yeah one one project that i'm sort of thinking of working on
1: Thank you. I hope our audience continues following your work, um, and we look forward uh, to um, re- reading it. Um, so, and and I also hope our audience um, reads the book that we talked about today, which is the Politics of Time in China and Japan: Back to the Future, which was published by Professor Viren Murthy, whom I spoke to today, by 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 Routledge in two thousand twenty-two. Um, so, so thank you, Viren.
0: Thank you.